Okay, well, good morning, everyone. If you do have your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1 is where we're going to be today. If you are new to the Bible, as we all once were, Exodus is the second book of the Bible, so grab that on your phone or turn in your paper Bible if you have it. If we have not met before, my name is Joseph, and we are in week three of our series, A Hidden Life, where we're exploring the everyday, ordinary, unnoticed characteristics of common people who live radically uncommon lives. Today, we are going to consider the characteristic of being subversive, all right? Now, do me a favor. If you have your phone, go ahead and take it out and open up your camera, all right? Take out your phone and open up your camera. I promise it won't get weird. Um, But before we dive into our text for today and before I share a few thoughts of my own as I reflected on this, I just want to give two quick recommended resources for you. If you come to the end of the talk today and it inspires you or you want to learn more, here are two really great resources that I would recommend to you. Uh, And I figured the best way to share you would be for you to take a picture. So the first one is this article, How the Midwives, Shifra and Pua Mock the Violence of Empire. I like it. Taking photos. That's what I'm talking about. Um, This is by a Cuban-American writer and theologian. Her name is Kat Armas. Phenomenal article. It will take you maybe 15 minutes to read through. Highly recommend that resource. Secondly... For those who want to dive a little bit deeper and want to get like a book and explore what we're going to talk about today in a little bit more deeper way, I want to recommend this book by Dr. Will Gaffney. It's called Womanist Midrash. That is an absolutely phenomenal resource. The time that I have spent with Dr. Gaffney listening and learning from her has totally transformed my life. Uh, We're going to read a little section from that book today, but if you're like, wow, that was amazing, Um, Yes, it was, and the whole book is like that. So I would highly recommend that resource as well. So as we begin, let me pray together, and then we will dive in. Holy Spirit, I love you. I love your presence. I love that you are always with us. I love that this morning as we gather Uh, You have access to our minds and our thoughts and our experiences and are able to mingle your thoughts with our thoughts. And so I pray this morning that that would be a reality, that we would hear from you, that we would see you, that you would show us the beauty and the wonder of Jesus, and that you would transform us. This morning we pray. Amen. In February of this past year, despite the ongoing vacancy of movie theaters and the nationwide ban on social distancing and travel bans and the conversation around what it would look like to release a movie on Apple TV, on HBO, and just have people watch a movie from home, all that set aside, visionary filmmaker Shaka King released his highly acclaimed biopic, Judas, and the Black Messiah. Now, Judas and the Black Messiah tells the true story of Fred Hampton, who was the chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party, who, despite leading a powerful revolution of justice and love for the people, fell victim to an undercover plot by an FBI informant in his own 
personal security detail. Despite his best efforts to promote a message of nonviolence, on December 4th, 1969, the Chicago Police Department broke into Fred Hampton's apartment and assassinated him by the order of the Cook County State Attorney's Office in conjunction with the FBI. This chilling, haunting, and emotional movie shows the influence Hampton and the Black Panther Party had on their community, the ways that they advocated for more access to employment and housing and education and an end to police brutality, and the commitment that these people had to nonviolently subverting the dominant empires of capitalism and violence and segregation and oppression. In more ways than one, Judas and the Black Messiah mirrors the story that we're going to look at this morning and shows us a very complicated and layered and nuanced and complex social set of consequences when a seemingly unnoticed, obscure, and powerless, seemingly powerless group of people commit themselves to the subversive acts of justice, love, and civil disobedience. Today we are going to be looking at the radically subversive story of Shifra and Pua in Exodus 1. Now, how many of you have, have spent significant time reading or looking at the story of Shifra and Pua? Anybody? Okay, if you're like me, before I started prepping for this and before I read Dr. Will Gaffney, I didn't even know who those two people were. So if that's you, I was there like six months ago, and then I read Dr. Will Gaffney, and I was like, my mind is literally blown. So hopefully by the end of today, you will be encouraged to continue to do some more study. But before we read our text, I want to set the stage for us. If you have been around the church for any length of time, you probably remember the story of Joseph. He gets sold into slavery by his brothers, and then over the course of time, he moves to Egypt, becomes second in command, and then his whole family comes. And this group of people is starting to gain momentum in this foreign land of prosperity and opportunity. However, when we turn the page from the end of Genesis and come into Exodus chapter 1, years have passed. Joseph and his immediate family have all died, and a new leader has come to power that, one, didn't care about Joseph, and two, had this overwhelmingly massive immigrant population in the land of Egypt. Now, there's one thing that I want us to keep in mind about the book of Exodus as we dive into our text today. When the author of Exodus refers to non-Egyptians, sometimes the author will say the word Hebrews, and then sometimes the author will say Israelites. So again, if you want to look at this more, I would encourage you, if you read through the book of Exodus, sometimes the author says Hebrews, other times the author says Israelites. The word Hebrews can be translated foreigner, immigrant, marginalized, or oppressed. Basically, anyone who is not in this ruling class of Egyptians. And when the author uses the word Israelites, they're talking specific, specifically about a non-Egyptian group that would later to become known as the Israelites. There's a very long rabbit trail on this that we don't have time for today, but the reason that I bring that up in the beginning is because I want us to notice as we read through this story that there's essentially two classes of people. We have the Egyptians 
and then we have everybody else. All right, so that's gonna be a really important distinction as we work through our text today. The Egyptians were the people with power. They had land and property and livestock and offspring and education and opportunity and generational wealth. And those without power was basically everybody else. Whether they worshiped Yahweh or not, if they were not Egyptian, they were oppressed, they were enslaved, they were marginalized, they didn't make a living wage, and they didn't have all the luxuries that Egyptians had. Now, with all that said, let's read our text. How are we doing? All right, that was a little technical, a little prep. Now we're going to get into the actual story of Shifra and Pua. Exodus 1, start reading with me in verse 15. The king of Egypt says to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Now, there is so much we could talk about today, so many different things to say, but I, what I want us to do is unpack the story. I want to give you a few handholds, and then we're going to see what it means for us as we're living in Spokane in the year 2021. What we're going to see today is that this subversive story of Shifra and Pua, who defy the empire, place their faith in the God who saves actually sets the stage for liberation for the entire book of Exodus and in so doing the entire nation of Israel. Okay, so the story starts off in a subversive way right off the bat. In verse 15, notice that the author doesn't even bother to mention the name of Pharaoh. We never even find out who this Pharaoh's name is, but the author does name these two women. And the act of naming Shifra and Pua right in the beginning of the story demonstrates the subversive nature of this narrative. It's almost like the author is not concerned with the Egyptians, this powerful group of people, but wants to center the story of this marginalized group of people. As we just talked about, Pharaoh and the Egyptians have enslaved the Israelites because they were threatened by the potential power of this group of people gaining momentum and rising up into power. Pharaoh is intimidated and calls these Hebrew midwives and says, look, these enslaved people, I've tried to keep them at bay by working them to death. That is not working because they keep multiplying, so we need to come up with a new plan. So what I want you to do is I want you to, whenever somebody has a baby, if it's a girl, let them live. If it's a boy, I want you to kill the baby because that's the only way that we can control this marginalized and oppressed group of people. I want you to kill the boys and let the girls live because the boys are the real threat. They could grow up. They could gain power. They could potentially overtake my throne. And I, as Pharaoh, 
being the most powerful person in the world, feel threatened by these boys. I don't care what you do with the girls, I'm definitely not threatened by the women here. They will grow up to be women, and women don't really pose a threat to my political, social, or spiritual power in the land, so don't worry about the women, focus on the men, kill the boys. Kat Armas, in that essay that I mentioned before, says this. Pharaoh thinks men pose a threat to his power, but he overlooks the real threat. God is using the women to set the scene for liberation. Enslaved to patriarchal ideology, Pharaoh disregards the woman's power and character, but scripture does not. In fact, the narrator of the Exodus story shows us how the women begin to take action. The story reveals with pointed irony the fallacy of the patriarchal lie that men are more valuable than women. When Pharaoh decrees twice that the girls shall live, he is intensifying the very power, namely the woman's power, that will eventually lead to his undoing. Can I get an amen? And as we'll see, this is exactly what happened in the story. This narrative shifts from the scene in Pharaoh's presence and takes us outside of these halls of power and in back with the people, into the streets, with the enslaved people, with the commoners in the marketplace. The story takes us back into the place of the people. And in verse 17, we read that these two women essentially gave a middle finger to Pharaoh and defied the empire. But notice why they did this. The text says, because they feared God. Now, here's where I want us to use our imagination for a bit. The next verse says that the king summons them back to his presence and after a little while realizes that the Israelites have continued to multiply. And we have no idea how long that was. We don't know if it was a month, if it was two months, if it was six months, if it was a year, it was two years. We don't really know. The text just goes, do this, and then the next verse says, why aren't you doing this? So what I want to do this morning is do a little imagination exercise. Dr. Will Gaffney, in her book, Womanist Midrash, that I recommended in the beginning, talks about this idea of the fertile ground between the lines of Scripture. She speaks to this Jewish idea of Midrash, which is a way of wrestling with the text of Scripture. Midrash asks questions and translates and uses the imagination to fill in the details of any given story, dream about what could be happening, and look for ways to draw out new ways of thinking about a specific verse or text. So we're going to do a little midrashing ourselves this morning, and as we do, I want to invite you to put yourself into this story. Imagine you have just received the news. You walk out of the meeting with a really powerful person and you now have a choice. Do we just go along with this, hope that things change, be a good person in the world, and just like, God, please let this stuff change because it's really bad? Or is there something else that God is inviting us into? So I'm going to read the Midrash that Dr. Gaffney wrote in response to this story, this portion of scripture, 
And this is her way of dreaming and imagining what could be happening between the lines of Scripture. So I invite you to take a deep breath, imagine yourself in the story, and see what this midrash does in your spirit. Now, for reference, this is a picture of two women who run a midwifery business in Nigeria, which is south of Africa, or south of Egypt, but similar to the type of life and occupation that Shifra and Pua would have had. So it might be a helpful picture for you as you kind of imagine the story of what these women might have looked like, might have been involved with, might have said in the story. Shifra and Pua call all the birthing women to assemble, telling their overseers that they are passing on Pharaoh's instructions. One Egyptian lingers longer than the other. Pua shoes him out with the ancient womanist refrain, this is women's business. So he leaves. Hundreds of women come to the place of Shifra's tent, many bringing daughters and granddaughters and nieces whom they are apprenticing in the profession. Some are pregnant, others are nursing. It takes more than a day for everyone to gather and eat and rest from their journeys. And there is talk, shop talk, women's words, shared experiences, and new techniques. Herbs to stop bleeding, herbs to bring on labor, teas to increase milk production, ways to limit pregnancies. Finally, Shifra speaks. She tells them of Pharaoh's words. The women gasp. Some mutter, some shout. Some of the children are frightened. Shifra and Pua shush them and call for calm. Shifra begins to prophesy. God has brought our people a mighty long way, and I don't believe God has brought us this far to leave us. Do not fear this Pharaoh or his warriors, nor his war horses, nor his chariots. God will blow them away like smoke in the wind. In our days, before our very eyes, God will break the back of Egypt and wash away its might. God will raise up one of our sons to lead us and all our children out of this slavery. Our hands and our wombs do God's work. We will deliver the deliverer. We will keep him safe until the day that God calls us, calls him to lead us to our freedom. We shall receive our freedom, dancing to woman's song, if we trust in the mighty power of Shaddai, who drew us from her holy womb, whose spirit covers the earth. Shifra takes a seat. Pua speaks. Trust in God whose name is holy. This is what we shall do. Deliver the babies, hide as many of the boys as you can, raise others as girls, do not worry about the Egyptians. They will not come to our house to check on us for we are women. They cannot imagine that we would defy the Pharaoh whom they revere as a living God. The women leave the convocation of birthing women. Days, weeks, 
Then months go by. Pharaoh is too busy to think about these Hebrew birthing women. Someone mentions that the Hebrew people are still growing. And in spite of Pharaoh's commandment, he summons them back to explain themselves. Now, this moment is as beautiful as it is complicated. These women are defying the orders of Pharaoh. They are disobeying. There are laws, there are creeds, there are edicts, there are codes that they are required to follow. They are not submitting to the governing authorities. Which in many ways, they are doing the exact opposite of what Paul tells the church in Rome to do in Romans 13. Read this with me. I mean, just listen to it. You can read it if you want to. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Shifra and Pua are clearly not doing that. In fact, they're literally doing the complete opposite of that. In fact, the text tells us that they straight up go to Pharaoh, make an excuse and be like, Pharaoh, I am real sorry. We're trying to do what you're telling us to do. But these Hebrew women, they come, they're hopping on the birthing stool, they're giving birth to their own baby, they pick it up, they walk out. We don't even have time to do anything. There's nothing that we can do. Sorry, we just can't make it happen. Which is straight up a lie, not even close to the truth, completely disregards Paul's word in Romans. And the question for us is, what do we do with this story? How do we have this tension throughout our faith of things that we want to do, things that we feel called to do, and then other times it feels like God is telling us to do something completely opposite to what our culture is telling us to do, and vice versa. Well, what do we see next? How does this story end? How does God respond to this civil disobedience, this subversive act of lying to the government and deceiving them. Remember at the beginning I said that this story was complicated, layered, nuanced, and complex because the text goes on to say that God was kind to the midwives. And not only that, but he gave them, quote, families of their own. God blesses this civil disobedience. Now, this isn't just saying that they got to keep their kids, which would have been a blessing in and of itself. But remember, this is an extremely patriarchal society. Lineage, families, marriages were always built around the men in society. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. Men are the prevailing patriarchs of faith and culture and family and society. But in this story, that narrative is flipped upside down on its head. 
These women who feared God, who cared for the Hebrew, the migrant, the immigrant, the enslaved, the low-income, the powerless people, they are given respect and status, and their names are remembered forever. These women set the stage for the story of liberation. If you know the story, Pharaoh goes on to kill the boys anyways, and Moses was one of those male babies that survived. But no doubt, this subversive rebellion and resistance from Shifra and Pua demonstrated towards the empire that they would set a stage for freedom and liberation for God's people to come out of slavery and inherit the promised land. And what's frustrating is we don't know what happens to these two women. We don't know how long it takes, if they live long lives, if they are able to gain wealth or status in society. We just don't know. But what we do know is that this ethic of love and justice and subversive resistance inspired generations of people and was completely embodied in the life and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. Generations later, Jesus shows us what this subversive, embodied life looks like. Jesus heals and affirms and centers and sticks up for those whom society has deemed unworthy. The leper, the eunuch, the sex worker, the unclean, the divorced, the poor, the criminal, the outcast, the other. It is in and through Jesus that we see the subversive act of civil disobedience, resistance, and rebellion come full circle. And in the end, this ethic of living and being in the world cost Jesus his life. Just like Fred Hampton, as we talked about in the beginning, who was betrayed by one of his own and was murdered by the state, Jesus similarly working to give power to the people, was betrayed by his own and was murdered by the state for this subversive act of justice and disobedience to the empire. And yet, in doing so, Jesus somehow ushered in a new reality for the possibility of God's beautiful reign of goodness and love and healing and justice and peace in the world. And because of Jesus, we now carry this sacred story forward by partnering with God to renew the world and see heaven come to earth. Now, as we close, I want you to consider what this story of Shifra and Pua means for you and for me. This story of civil disobedience and defiance and subversive rebellion should not only invoke inspiration in each of us, but I also think should reveal the gaps in which God's people, specifically in our context, have failed to model this in our cultural moment. The birthing stools of decision are all around us every day. There are rules and laws and judges and culturally accepted norms that we live under. There are presidents and congress leaders and mayors and law enforcement and bosses and school boards and teachers and family members and friends who are in a lot of ways embodying these same disparities of power and injustice. 
in what ways are we individually and corporately called to subversively rebel against the empire and care for the Hebrew among us? How are we called to care for the widow, the orphan, the migrant, the poor, the disabled, the unhoused in our community? Well, I don't have an answer for you, so I'm just gonna divert to, as we end, this last quote from Kate Armas. She says this, meeting Pharaoh's violence with deceit, the Hebrew midwives, like so many women after them, act as divine hoderones by working in society to uncover its inconsistencies, inequalities, and injustices. Paradoxically, while they deceive, they also tell the truth. By exposing the deficiencies of what is and offering an opportunity to see what could be, they advance justice for the whole community, and they are blessed by God because of it. May it be so among us. Amen. As we close, uh, I just want to create space to uh, listen to Holy Spirit. So right where you're sitting, you can just take a deep breath, close your eyes. Maybe God has been saying something to you or bringing something to your mind or bringing up an experience. And I just want to invite you to listen to what God might be saying to you in this moment. So together we pray, come Holy Spirit. We love your presence, we love who you are, we love your voice. I pray, God, that you would speak to us in this moment. Now let's just pause and reflect. I usually like to close my teachings with a few things that I sense God saying uh, to the community. So it could be wrong, these could be way off, uh, or they might connect with some of you. So if this connects with you, uh, I would love to pray with you after uh, the service today. I'll be up here, would love to just hear your story, pray with you if you feel like either of these words are for you. The first thing I sensed um, was that there was specifically someone here, uh, maybe a parent, who this last week or recently has felt a lot of shame for either the ways that they have been parenting or their lack of parenting or kids. Uh, just kind of this overwhelming sense of, of shame around the idea of raising kids up. Um, and I sensed that God's invitation in that moment was to just remind you that shame is not from God, and that voice does not come from God, uh, and that voice is from the enemy. Uh, and so that might be an invitation uh, to you to reorient yourself to God's voice and not the voice of the accuser. The second uh, thing that I sense God saying, I kind of had this image of a road trip, and the person was sitting in the seat, and they had their phone on GPS, and they came to kind of this fork in the road, and right when they came to the fork in the road, their phone died, and the GPS died, and so I kind of got the sense that there was this desire to move forward and to go down one of these streets, but your bearings were off, and you didn't really know which street to take, and it was causing you a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress in that moment to try to charge your phone to get back on track. Um, and I sense God's invitation in that moment was just to rest. And just to be okay 
and to remember that God is a loving God who provides for you. Um, so again, neither of those maybe resonated with you. Um, that's totally fine. Uh, but if they did, I'd love to pray with and for you after the gathering. So as we end, um, just maybe 30 more seconds, let's just listen to God's voice together.